it is time now for us to start considering what we do when we gather for worship. We've talked about the focus of it and the purposes of it and the timing of it and a variety of things. But now we're going to start to get into what I'm calling the elements of gathered worship. Uh, what do we actually do? And we'll just get started with this this morning, and then we will continue that in, in the weeks ahead. Uh, just one note about terminology as we get started. It, help, it helps me as we talk about this in this part of the series to distinguish between our gathering and our services. Um, so if you think about the gathering of the church family as beginning kind of like when you get out of your car in the parking lot and ending when you get in your car and leave, everything from when you get here to when you leave is our gathering. Not all of that is the service. So we come together and we have this service. But the stuff that happens before the service is, can be very important sometimes. You can get a group of people over here praying together. You can get conversations that are really part of us building each other up in Christ. So there's stuff we do even before the service that's worship. And then there's the stuff that happens after, after the services um, that is also essential parts of church family and is in its own senses worship. So you can think of the whole thing as our gathering, coming together to draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. But then within that, we have this dedicated time when we all sit down together and we have these, these services starting at 9.30 and, and the way we do it really continuing till 11, 11.45. So um, it helps me to distinguish kind of between the whole gathering and what we do in a service. Because now when we talk about the elements I'm not talk about, talking about the elements of the entire gathering necessarily, but the elements of these services. So today, how do we open a service? How do we close a service? And then we're going to talk about one element of what we do in between, and that is, uh, and that is reading. So let's stop and pray, and then I want to back up and just remind us of an incident from Israel's history. So let's pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, and in, in worship, we are always responding to you. You're the God who created before we even existed. You're the God who speaks, and we respond to your word. You are the God who came after us when we were lost sinners, and we were not seeking you. You are the God who sent the Savior to come in human flesh for us. Like we learned in John 4, you are the one seeking worshipers to turn idolaters into God-honoring worshipers. And so we come to you today not because of ourselves, not because we could in any way get you to come and be with us, but because you already have. You've already sent a Savior. You've already sent your Spirit, and now you call us to draw near. So would you by your spirit today, bring our hearts and our minds away from all the clutter, all the distractions, all the sufferings and pains and joys and rejoicing even, and bring us here now together around Jesus Christ for your glory. And I pray in his name. Amen. All right. Uh, I want to just recount the, what's recorded in Nehemiah chapters 7 through 10. The year was 445 BC, and in the six months before this, the Lord had allowed Nehemiah and some other Jews to return from Babylon to the Promised Land. And in those six months since they came back, 
their enemies had deceived and intimidated and opposed them in every way they could. And yet, by God's strength, through God's protection, and by the hard work and, and, and risky work of the people, they had successfully rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And, but even once those walls were built, it was still a very dangerous time because they did not begin to have the, the means of protection around them that we just totally take for granted in our country today. They didn't have laws. They didn't have a judiciary. They had no law enforcement, no military, no established government. They were just a ragtag group of people winging it. Now, Nehemiah was technically the governor, but there was no government for him to govern. This was just trying to make it work. So one of the things Nehemiah did, knew was he needed to find out which Jews are here and how can we kind of gather them together. So he called for a census and they took a census. There were, it turned out there were about 50,000 Jews um, that were back in the land. Um, and that might, the timing's a little hard to figure out, but that might include the group that came back with Ezra as recorded in Ezra chapter 8. So then Ezra and Nehemiah decided to gather all those people to Jerusalem to hear the word of God. Because after so many years in Babylon, many of the Jews actually knew very little about their own faith and had heard very little of their own scriptures. And so Ezra and Nehemiah said, this cannot be so. We need to bring everybody together and we need to read God's word to them. And so it, it's, it's remarkable God's grace there because though the majority of the people knew very little about God's word, the priest Ezra, God had worked in his heart in such a way that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to obey it and to teach it to others. And in this story, we find out that in addition to Ezra, there were a whole bunch of Levites, which is kind of like a, another category of priests, that had also been studying the word and were ready to help teach other people. So God had gotten this group of teachers ready to help the people understand the Bible. So Nehemiah 8 verse 1 says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they found an area of Jerusalem where they could fit a, a, a I don't know how many, but a, a significant portion of those 50,000 Jews that were in the land. And it says in verse 4 that they had built a wooden platform for Ezra and the Levites to go up upon. And so with the people gathered there around that platform, they, they brought out a scroll containing some portion of the law of God. Now, I don't know how they did that, but it's interesting that in church history, including in, in English church history, there are times when in some church traditions, the service began with a man walking in, carrying the church's great big huge pulpit Bible above his head. And everyone would stand and he would walk in and bring that Bible, carry it up to the front and set it on that high pulpit that they reserved for just preaching and scripture reading. That was how the service opened. And so this is probably something similar. All the people are there watching, and they carry in this scroll, and it had to be a big, a big scroll. And they bring it up onto that platform, and they, and they unrolled the scroll. And as they did that, all the people stood and so then in verse 6, it says that they, they, they basically, they began their service and 
uh, it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. So I don't know exactly what he said, but apparently Ezra, the, the first words of the service were expressing joy and gratitude for the goodness and the greatness of God. And verse 6 continues, that all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Lifting up their hands. I'm just going to forewarn you that amens are all over the Bible and important. And as this series goes along, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to exhort us to not be so afraid to amen. I've done it in the past several times, but we're going to do it with even more Bible authority in this series. We're going to talk more about how we respond to God. So anyways, all the people answered, amen, when they heard Ezra's opening call about the glory of God. And then it says, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Again, if we were to go back in church history, we would see, and you've probably seen this, there are times and places, and there are still churches today, in which churches incorporated kneeling benches so that if you wanted to, during, well, of course, in some church traditions, it's all formal tradition, and you stand and kneel and all that. But there are churches that had kneeling benches so that if you wanted to kneel before the Lord during the service, you could. And so it says that they, they bowed their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then, after that opening, Ezra and the Levites worked together to read the word of God to the people for the next maybe six hours. And there are two fascinating phrases about this in verses 7 and 8. Verse 8 says that the Levites gave the sense. Now, we're not certain what that term means, but one of the likely meanings is that they were doing some translating to help some of these Jews whose Hebrew was pretty rusty to make sure that they could understand the Hebrew. And in verse 7, it also says that they helped the people to understand the law. So as they were reading through the law, they were apparently doing something like read a section and then stop make some translation comments, or maybe they were translating as they kind of went along, and then stop and do some explaining. And then read some more, and then stop and do some explaining. And then read some more. And they did this for hours. And as they did that, rather than getting bored or distracted, the people began to weep. And then something really unexpected happened. Because the leaders told the people, don't just respond with weeping, rejoice. You know that little line, the joy of the Lord is our strength? That comes from Nehemiah and the Levites speaking to the people who were weeping as they heard the word of God that day in Jerusalem. And they, it, verse 10, then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what that is right there, right? That is, they, they, they sent them out for Discipleship Connect and potluck. <laughs> is it not the case? And then some of them returned the next day. 
Well, partly they figured out they needed to be celebrating the Feast of Booths, and so they tried to celebrate the Feast of Booths, even though they weren't ready for it. And so then they have this week of, of, of celebration. And each day for the next week, they kept gathering for hours at a time to hear the reading of God's word and the explanation of it. And sometimes along the way, they would realize their sin, and they would begin to fast and mourn and confess their sins. And on one day, if you look over chapter 9, verse 3, here's an example from one day. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. How about that? And so this is what they were doing day after day. And then the Levites called them to stand. Verse 5, stand up and bless the Lord your God. And in, all, in a, the, the large section that follows after that, the Levites led them with words of praise about the greatness of God as their creator and redeemer, which then led into more prayers of repentance and confession. And then at the conclusion of that, of that time together, the leaders led the people in recommitting themselves to God. And we don't have time to read that, but it's at the end of chapter 9 and then through chapter 10. They essentially renewed their covenant relationship, recommitting themselves to God. That is an incredible story. Now, I realize there are big differences between that situation in ancient Israel and our weekly gathering as the New Testament church. Yet, as I read that story, I'm amazed at how many elements that are essential for our services today are found right there in what they did. The opening, the closing, the leaders, the reading, the teaching, the singing, the praise, the confession, the standing, the bowing, the amening, even the eating. It's remarkable uh, how it establish how it demonstrates that these things we do in these services come out of a right understanding of God and what his word says. These are the things God's people do together and have always done together. It's also a very encouraging story of how in the darkest times God can revive his people through gathered worship because it was a dark time, right? When the people of God know nothing about the word of God, you have a dark time. And yet there, then, through gathered worship, God brought revival. So these days we hear all the time, America needs revival. And that's true. But it is certain that if God brings revival to America, it won't start out there. It will start in the faithful gathered worship of his people, whom he will stir up for his glory. So that part of the story is very encouraging too. If we will, if we as a church will stay away from the pragmatism, from the, for example, I, I, I realize this was an unusual situation. And so the fact that they read the Bible for a quarter of the day uh, is not something we can maintain as a people. But if you think about that in contrast to what's gone on in American evangelicalism recently, where it's like, uh, we better keep the sermon to 25 minutes so we don't make anybody uncomfortable. You see how far we've come? And so if the people of God will stay away from the pragmatism, away from the worldly methodology, away from comfort or ease or whatever might keep us from true worship, God will work here among us and God will revive us again. So it is of the utmost importance that we consider the elements of 
gathered worship. So this morning, we're going to talk about opening, closing, and reading. And I want to start with reading because it's so foundational. So first element of gathered worship is simply reading the Bible. Let me just trace some of the biblical background to that for you. So this is just a a kind of a quick overview. When Moses received the law at Sinai, he wrote it down, but he also verbally communicated it to the people of Israel. And then after the long period of wandering in the wilderness, when that whole generation had died, Moses again verbally gave them the word of God. And that's when he instructed them every year to gather at the Feast of Booths and read the law to the people. You might be familiar with this scene where they divided the people into into groups so that they could read kind of to each other the blessings and the curses of the law. So from the from the very beginning there, public scripture reading was essential to the people of God. They came into the promised land, and Joshua led them in doing that. He led them in those public scripture readings. But then as the years went by, many of Israel's leaders abandoned this. That's why stories like King Josiah, when they actually did public scripture reading, are unusual, because it was so often neglected. And then came the Babylonian captivity, and that, of course, made it extremely difficult, though the people were scattered and, and under foreign leadership and all that. But then after that, God brought his people back, some of them, and we get this great scripture reading in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. After that, in the centuries leading up to Jesus, was when the Jewish system of synagogues was really kind of formally developed. And so by the time we get to Jesus and then the New Testament apostles, we know that many of the Jews were gathering for weekly scripture reading in the synagogues. The New Testament just directly talks about that. We mentioned a couple weeks ago, or last Sunday, Luke chapter 4, that tells us that Jesus read Isaiah 61 in a synagogue service. In the book of Acts, there are multiple references to Paul coming to Sabbath synagogue services. Um, So there's all of that historical background. But then when we come to the New Testament letters and instructions, Paul gives this command to Timothy, a pastor, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And that word there used for the public reading of Scripture is the same word used otherwise in the New Testament for those synagogue readings. So it is public Scripture reading that he's talking about. And it's clear in the New Testament that the writings of the apostles were being read out loud in church gatherings. Paul even made the Thessalonians promise that they'd read it out loud to the church. Um, the book of Revelation was sent to the churches, and it was read out loud. And I think, I think on your handout, you have Hebrews 13, 22. This is an almost humorous note at the end of the book of Hebrews. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He knows, whoever wrote Hebrews, knew that the whole letter was going to be read to the entire church at once. Because that's what we do with letters, right? Well, I mean, maybe an email is a work. You only read the first paragraph. But when when we get a letter from somebody we care about, you don't just like read a paragraph and then say, ah, next week I'll read the next paragraph. You read the letter. And so he knew, whoever wrote Hebrews knew that this letter was going to be read to the whole church at once. So he, so as he wrote, he's trying to write briefly. This is Pastor Tim every Saturday night, trying to write sermon briefly. 
And he says, I appeal to you, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. But he still knew that it was going to take about an hour to read the book of Hebrews out loud to the church. But it's meant to be read like that. We're used to thinking in terms of chapters and verses, but all that was added later to help us keep organization in the Bible. Hebrews was one letter, and it was read all together to the church. So my point in this biblical overview is just to say that from Exodus to Revelation, public scripture reading has been essential for the people of God. We could then move into church history and see how the reading of Scripture has been at the center of gathered worship from the very beginning. So, for example, last week I I quoted from Justin Martyr's Apology, which was his explanation to the Roman emperor of Christianity, um, because he talked there about first day of the week, resurrection Sunday worship, and he was explaining that to the emperor. He also said in that same writing, he said, he told the emperor, the memoirs, the memoirs of the apostles— and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Isn't that a fascinating sentence? He's telling the emperor, here's what Christians do. They gather to read the Bible for as long as they can. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president, which would be the person leading the service, like an elder, gives verbal instruction and invitation to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. That's 155 AD. Isn't that fascinating? Here's what the Roman emperor needs to know. Christians get together, and when they do, they read the Bible for as long as they can. And then somebody gets up and explains it and exhorts everybody to obey it. And then they all pray together. And if we had time, we could continue to trace the public reading of Scripture throughout church history. Unfortunately, a surprising number of evangelical churches these days don't include a time of Scripture reading in their service. Um, you're more likely to hear scripture readings in a liberal Protestant church or a Catholic service than in some evangelical churches today. And that should not be the case. We know that the Bible is our very life, Deuteronomy 32, 47. The church exists because of the word. God created by the word. God causes new creation By the word, we have eternal life because of the word. It's the sword of the spirit. We can't live by bread alone, but by every every word of God. So nothing is more foundational to gathered worship than reading the Bible. And God intends for us to hear one another's voices reading the word. You realize that's part of what's going on here. We're not just talking about private Bible reading, though that's very important. We're talking about God's people being together to hear the public reading of of the word. So let's consider that then both narrowly and broadly. Narrowly, that means that in our service, we have a time dedicated to reading, not just a verse or two, but a section of scripture. Sometimes it's a paragraph, sometimes it's a chapter, sometimes it's connected to the Lord's Supper or the theme of the service. Other times we're just week after week working our way through um, a portion of scripture and kind of picking up where we left off last Sunday. So when we talk about reading the Bible as the first element of gathered worship, we're, we are narrowly referring to a portion of the service set aside to read a section of God's Word. Now, even within that, though, it's, it's fascinating that the Bible itself shows us we can do that in lots of different ways. We see different types of public, scripture, public reading in Scripture, like, like there are 
responsive readings. That's what we did this morning. A leader and the congregation went back and forth. There are uh, antiphonal readings, which is where different parts of the congregation read back and forth like to each other, like you had at those two mountains at the end of Deuteronomy. There are what, what we call today litanies, which is where the congregation repeats a key phrase, like, like uh, Psalm 118, where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, right? And, and there, it's like the leader says something, and then the congregation says the same refrain every time. We call that a, a litany. So it, it can be done in many, many different ways. But narrowly speaking, Scripture reading is a portion of the service dedicated to reading the Bible. However, we should also think more broadly and recognize that actually Scripture readings form the backbone of the entire service. So, for example, in a moment I'm going to talk about how we open and close a service. Oftentimes, a service begins and ends with some type of Scripture reading. In between, we often sing, and all of our songs at GBC are either taken directly from Scripture or based directly off of Scripture. Songs are a means of both reading and teaching Scripture. Consider also prayers. Did you, did you pick up on the Lord's Prayer in Pastor Eric's pastoral prayer this morning? The best public prayers are based off of Scripture. And consider also the sermon. A sermon, at its essence, is a public scripture reading with explanation and exhortation based off of it. A sermon without scripture is a body without a backbone. It's a pile of goop. And so we don't have to think of the scripture reading and the sermon as two different things. Rather, think of the sermon as a type of scripture reading. That also includes making sure you understand it, explanations and exhortations to make sure we know how to live based on that text of Scripture. And so it turns out that our whole service revolves around a number of different types of Scripture reading. So it's Sunday morning, and your neighbor says, what are you doing today? And you could say, I'm getting together with my church family to read the Bible. And your neighbor might say, you're just going to read the Bible? And you say, well, yeah, we're going to read the Bible in a lot of different ways. But pretty much, yeah, we're going to get together to read the Bible. We're going to do it in songs, and we're going to do it in Scripture readings, and we're going to do it in a sermon, and we're going to do it in individual conversations, and we're going to do it through prayers. But yeah, we're going to, we're going to gather to read the Bible. It is the very backbone of all that we do in Christian gathered worship. Okay, so that's our first element. Now, with the rest of our time, I want us to consider how we begin a service and how we end. And that might not sound interesting, but it really, really is. Uh, I hope you'll think that by the time we're done. There isn't any single biblical way to do it. That's not what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of flexibility here. But there are many Bible examples and principles to guide us. So let's talk, first of all, about opening the service. And first of all, we often need to begin our service with some church family life stuff, frequently called announcements. And that might seem unspiritual, and a number of people are good at avoiding hearing them, but it actually communicates something very important, and that is the whom of worship. Remember, that was our very first theme in this study of gathered worship. Who gathers? Gathered worship isn't like a movie theater or a concert, or a game 
where a group of somewhat random people show up, like whoever decided to buy a ticket for this one, church families gather every week. They don't neglect meeting together to draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. In other words, gathered worship begins not just with me, but with us. And so when we gather, it's not like the beginning of a concert. Welcome to the show. Please silence your cell phones. I mean, we do hope you'll silence your cell phones, but it's not a formal opening. This is a family gathering. It's more like open the front door and come in and, hey, you're here. Welcome. And we sometimes then, because it's the beginning of a family gathering, and this is the time each week when we see each other, we need to talk about urgent prayer requests or needs or opportunities or changes to our schedule or news that we have to rejoice in, like a wedding reception and, and so forth. So we're not afraid to begin as a church family rather than as a slick production. Now, having said that, um, I will probably sound like I'm nagging in what I say next, but... Um, I would just ask you to consider um, being in here for the opening of our service. Um, as insignificant as it might seem, it's not. Uh, there are frequent Sundays when I have very carefully and prayerfully planned exactly what I'm going to say in announcements. Because when we talk about what we're doing, is is always an opportunity to talk about why why do these things even matter? We're not just going through motions. And so there are many times when there is news going on in the world and I'll make public comments about it or we'll lead a prayer about it or there's stuff going on in church life that we comment on or talk about at the beginning of a service. Uh, so I would just encourage you that I, we are all humans. We run into traffic. We get late. We, 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 we spill jam all over our shirt on the way out the door. I totally understand all that. This is in no way meant to to suggest that you're more spiritual if you're always in your seat at 920. Um, I'm just asking that in your heart, you might say, this is a family gathering, and I would love to be there like right when we start so that I don't miss any, any part of it. Now, after that family opening, we don't then remain entirely casual and informal. We are a family, but we are the family of the living God. He is a consuming fire, and we are drawing near to him with reverence and with awe. Without his grace and without the death of Christ for us, his presence would destroy us. He is holy, and he is mighty, and he is worthy. He owns us as our creator. He owns us as our redeemer. He is worthy of every bit of our lives. And so after our family welcome and opening, we move into some type of call to worship. And throughout Christian history, this has been the consistent pattern for opening a service. And the reason is because God calls us to come worship. As we've learned, worship is our response to God. He creates, he speaks, he sends Jesus, he redeems, he seeks worshipers, he calls us to himself, he says, come and worship. Let me just read to you some from various parts of the Bible. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We don't gather and then hope God will show up. We gather to draw near to God because he has already come in Christ. He's already come to us by his spirit and he calls us to draw near and worship. So a call to worship might be really direct, like the leader might use one of those verses I just, I just quoted, and he might say that to us to call us to worship. But it can also happen in many other ways. For example, the leader might take some other part of Scripture that points us to the greatness or goodness of God, and he might read it, and then he might say, now, because those things are true, because God is like this, because God has done this, let's draw near to him. Let's come to him as a church family. Or, and, and then, you know, sometimes then like the congregation might respond with a hymn of praise. Or a, a choir or a small group or a soloist might open the service by singing to us in a way that calls us to come and worship because of who God is. Or we might use a hymn that in which we call each other to worship, like we might sing to each other, all creatures of our God and King, or come Christians join to sing, or crown him with many crowns, or oh come and sing unto the Lord. So we could use a, a congregational hymn. Or the leader might begin with a prayer of praise, a prayer of dependence, or something like that. So it can happen in many different ways, but the key theme is that it somehow expresses God's call for his people to come and worship him so that then all the rest of what we do is our response to, to him. Um, here's one other way to think about it. Let me give you four words, four themes that we expect to see early in every service. God, scripture, gospel, and dependence. This isn't on your handout. God, scripture, gospel, independence. So very early in the service, you can expect to see a focus upon God since he's always the focus of gathered worship, as we just learned. Secondly, very early in the service, you're going to hear scripture. You're going to hear it through a scripture reading or through the leader or through a song because it's, as we've already said, it's the backbone of the whole service. Thirdly, early on in the service, something is going to tether to the gospel because we are sinners who could not come and worship without the cross of Christ. Remember, as Colossians says, do everything in the name of Jesus. We're gathering on the first day of the week in honor of his resurrection, and there's nothing we can do in worship without Christ. So we tether right away as sinners who need a savior to the gospel, which allows us to worship. God, scripture, gospel, and then fourthly, dependence, because we can't worship without God's help. We are always dependent upon the help of the Spirit of God. So those are the, the kind of big themes we want to express early in the service as we hear God's call to worship and we respond. And now let's jump to the end and talk about how we close. 
And historically, uh, Christian services have ended with a charge or a blessing or usually both. And there are good reasons for that. Um, As we've learned, worshipers come in to gather worship, and then worshipers go back out. Gathered worship strengthens and prepares us to go back out into our homes, into the world, once again presenting our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, as our acceptable worship to, to him. And so a charge is appropriate at the end of a service because Scripture has been the backbone of the entire service And as we learned in Psalm 95, we must respond to that. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you came to a service where the word of God was the backbone of the entire service, don't harden your heart. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We worship God by submitting to the word. That's why I think we had the quote last Sunday. That's why we don't use terminology like, worship and the word, as if they're different things. Actually, preaching is worship, and responding to preaching is worship, and reading is worship, and responding to reading is worship. So it's appropriate to be sent out with a charge, an exhortation. It's like in Nehemiah 9 and 10, that recommitment of themselves to God. That was their conclusion after that extended time of of worship together. So a charge, yeah, and yet, We so greatly need encouragement as we go out. We need reminded of God's boundless and endless love for us in Christ. His strength, his promises, his wisdom, his presence with us. You've probably heard the term benediction. Um, I'm sure this isn't a technical definition, but the way I think of a benediction is uh, a benediction is a prayer for a person But instead of being spoken directly to God, it's spoken to that person. So the the most famous benediction in Scripture is probably Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So a a benediction is one of the ways to reassure God's people of God's blessing as they go out. It's a prayer for them, but it's spoken to them. So a service might end in many ways. You might have a song sung by the congregation where we're singing to the Lord and to one another in response. You might have a song sung to the congregation by a group or a a solo. You might have words from the pastor. You might have a benediction or another kind of prayer or a scripture reading. There'll be a lot of variety, but the key themes are going to be a charge, a blessing, or both. We respond to God's word, recommit ourselves to a life of worship, and then we're reminded of God's goodness and God's promises as we get ready to go. So, to close this morning, I'd like to let God's word do it. So, part of what I did as I studied for this sermon was I read through the ending of every book in the New Testament to see how they ended. And um, I want to just, I just want to read a bunch of that to you um, so you can hear God's endings. Um, And you'll see as we go along the combination of charge and blessing, exhortation and encouragement. Watch for that combination. Um, But before we read 
So before you start into what's in your handout there, let me mention the ending of the four Gospels, because I didn't include that on here. How does Matthew end? Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's the charge. And then is there any encouragement? I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how Matthew ends. How does Mark end? It says, The disciples went out and preached, and the Lord worked with them. How does Luke end? It records that Jesus blessed his disciples, then he returned to heaven, and then they headed into Jerusalem to worship. And how does John end? John's a little different, but John basically ends by saying, These things are true, and Jesus is amazing. So that's really, that. there's the exhortation. These things are true. And Jesus is even more than I could have ever expressed in this book. There's the encouragement. Okay, so that's the Gospels. But now, here are some samples from the rest of the New Testament. And these, these things are not necessarily the last words in every book. As a matter of fact, there are few times where this is actually the end of a section within a book or where there was uh, like a final sign-off or something in the letter at the end. So it's not necessarily the last words, but that's frequently what, what this is. So this will be our, our conclusion this morning, um, though I'll, I'll pray at the end. But hear these words of the Lord to us. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And by the way, I cut so many amens from this because they're in so many of these. Uh, and we'll talk about that later. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of peace be with you all. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest as God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, with everyone. Amen. That is the word of the Lord to you. Father, thank you for your word, for saying these things to us. Thank you for charging us. Thank you for encouraging us. May you guide us in such a way that in our openings, our closings, and our readings, we might become more and more of a a church family that is worshiping in the ways that help us grow and bring you great glory. All of these things are through Christ, not because we open perfectly or close perfectly or read perfectly, but because you are perfect and have provided perfect and complete salvation for sinners like us. And so for our Savior Jesus Christ, we praise you. For the help of the Spirit this morning, we thank you. And we join all of these calls for God to receive great glory, both now and forever, through us 
Amen.